Hey folks, it's Rufus Griscom. It's good to be back. Did you think we forgot about you? Not a chance. We love making the show so much that we've taken the production in-house and we've been hard at work developing a new format that I think you're going to enjoy. Alert listeners of our prior seasons know that a few years ago, I co-founded a book club with four of my favorite writers, Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Adam Grant, and Dan Pink. And you know what happens when you start a book club? You get stacks and stacks of the best new books piling up at your headquarters. And there are always a few that we can't stop talking about. So we asked the authors of those books to distill them down into five big ideas. And then we're going to call them up and talk about them. We're going into this show with an unusual ambition. We want to have our minds changed, or at least we're open to it. Maybe you are too. So let's get into it. This is the next big idea. I've been hearing the same question a lot lately from friends and family, from supermarket cashiers and talking heads on the nightly news. You've probably heard it too. I want to talk about getting back When's to normal. When's it going to be done? When are we going to get back People to normal? People want to know when's it all when going to be back to normal. When do you think life will fully return to what we thought of as normal? We've been asking for months, yet the answer still eludes us. It's a question of pure estimates. By there are so many things Next Christmas, in play. I think we'll be in a very different circumstance, but we don't know. We don't know. We don't know if these new vaccines will be silver bullets or BB gun pellets. Are we going to be dancing on tables this summer or worrying about the latest COVID variants? How about our kids? When will they hoist their backpacks onto their shoulders and head back to school the way it used to be? Whenever it is, it can't come soon enough for the three million of them who haven't had any formal education at all since last March. And we can't forget all the Americans who've lost their jobs. When will they get back on their feet? With so much uncertainty, it's hard not to feel helpless. And when we feel helpless, we ask again, when will life go back to normal? But here's the question I think we should be asking. Do we really want it to? Yes, of course, we want this virus to stop killing people. We want to be able to hug our far-off loved ones. We want to pass strangers on the sidewalk without worrying that their proximity puts us in mortal danger. But think about the before times more broadly for a second. Do you really want to go back to a world where normal means spending 200 hours a year commuting? A world where your kid graduates from college with $30,000 in debt and mediocre job prospects? A world where you put more faith in philanthropic billionaires than elected officials? These are the kinds of questions that my guest Scott Galloway poses in his new book, Post-Corona, From Crisis to Opportunity. The way he sees it, COVID-19 has set the world spinning faster than ever. But that velocity creates an opportunity. We can harness that momentum to rethink the fundamentals of our society and invent a new normal. Scott, as you're about to discover, is a little bit of a character. And by character, I mean he's one part business savant, one part social critic, and one part Molotov cocktail. In his previous book, The Four, he showed us how The Four, that's Amazon, Google, Facebook, and Apple, took over the world and our lives. He revisits those themes in post-corona, but this book is about a lot more than business. He has ideas for how we can revolutionize healthcare. He wants to rethink education, a topic he knows something about as a professor at NYU's business school. He also makes a bold case for renewing our sense of community. In his introduction, Scott writes, whether the U.S. is headed for a Hunger Games future or something brighter depends on which path we choose post-corona. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Scott Galloway, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, Scott, you have had quite an interesting journey. Hmm. You're a marketing consultant turned serial entrepreneur. 
You then took a turn in the hedge fund business. You were an activist investor. Now you're an activist tweeter, mm-hmm. giving the Twitter board and others unsolicited advice. In the midst of all this, you have two podcasts, not one, but two podcasts on which you call companies gangsters and CEOs ballers. This is a good thing I've learned. Mm-hmm. You appear to be nonetheless an upstanding citizen with mm-hmm. two kids, a wife living in suburban bliss between Florida and New York, where you have a job as a marketing professor at NYU. Meanwhile, with all this going on, in your spare time, you published a book post-corona, From Crisis to Opportunity, and you managed to get this book into people's hands during corona, mid-corona. Scott, how do you pull all this off? Do you have an energy drink you can recommend? How do you, how do, you do it? Meth. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, uh, uh, so, uh, okay, how do I do it? The long-term strategy is that greatness is in the agency of others. The only thing I've sort of known how to do throughout my career is to attract and retain really talented people. And also just, I made a personal decision. I'm not a workaholic. I'm outstanding at not working. I want to spend more of my life uh, not working. And I think one of the keys to not working as you get older is understanding when to turn the jets on. And Jerry Rice Hall of Fame Wide receiver was never the fastest guy in the field, but he supposedly could accelerate and decelerate faster than anybody. And as a result, got open hmm. more. I think in your own professional life, it's really important to know when to accelerate. I mean, when to really turn on the jets. And I observed hmm. when the pandemic uh, hit our shores, I said to my publisher, to my team, to my family, this is the opportunity. I hate to say the pandemic is an opportunity for anyone, but I said, uh, I, we need to work around the clock for until this pandemic is over because there's just going to be so much disruption and so much mm. interesting thirst for information. So I think this is an opportunity if you're blessed with remote technology and you do something where you can do it remotely, this is the time to be Jerry Rice. Wow. Uh, yeah, no, that, that makes a whole lot of sense. And it's been quite a 2020. You say early in the book that everything has advanced 10 years, including relationships. It sounds like it's been a long 2020 in the, in the Galloway household. How, how are you guys holding up throughout all this? Uh, that's a generous question. We're doing fine now. We had a frightening moment. One of my sons struggled with the lack of school and developed what I would call mild device addiction. And uh, it really kind of took him off the tracks for a while. And when something comes off the tracks with one of your kids, the entire universe shrinks to that, that kid. That was probably one of the most stressful things I've ever been through. You know, my worst days are better than most people's best days. I'm incredibly blessed. I like to think I recognize that. But there was one, I'll call it 30-day period uh, during the pandemic. And I imagine this is happening all over America Yeah, uh, where, where we um, were struggling with one of our kids around this. That was scary. But on the whole, and this is the dirty secret of, the, of COVID, is that if you're in the top 10% economically, and you're blessed with good health, you're likely living your best life. COVID-19 has meant more time with family, more time with Netflix, and your stock market portfolio has exploded. Yeah, absolutely right. Well, I think this cues us up for the first big idea in your book. Mm -hmm. One, the pandemic is accelerating existing trends. COVID-19 has initiated some trends and altered the direction of others, but its most enduring impact will be as an accelerant. Take any trend, social, business, or personal, and fast forward 10 years. Even if your company isn't living in the year 2030 yet, the pandemic has spurred changes in consumer behavior and markets. This is clear in the rapid increase in online shopping, in the shift towards remote delivery of healthcare, and in the spectacular increase in valuation among the biggest tech firms. This brings to mind the quote widely attributed to Lenin, cited in your book, Nothing can happen for decades, and then decades can happen in weeks. It's kind of ironic that here we are, staying put, stuck inside, and the world is spinning faster than ever before. What, what do you think is happening? Yeah, this is an accelerant. There, re- there really aren't that many trends that weren't already happening. Uh, e-commerce was growing 1% a year as a percentage of all retail. It was at 18% sitting here in March of 2020, and in eight weeks, it went to 28%, decade of acceleration. More young people were living at home uh, than ever before, accelerated six years in terms of the trend line. There are now more people, young men and women between the age of 18 and 30 living at home than are living on their own. Income inequality has been a problem. It's accelerated. The dysfunctional attributes of our economy have turned 
dystopian. Uh, online grocery delivery has accelerated a decade. Working from home was a trend, and it's accelerated a decade. Government spending was increasing, as was our deficit. It's accelerated 24 years. Our government is spending what it was supposed to be spending in 2045. Now, hopefully that'll come back when we stop this ridiculous stimulus, um, crack cocaine crime against future generations, deficit mm. spending party we're on to keep the rich rich or make the rich richer, in my view. Anyway, you've just seen it everywhere. We're going to see an acceleration in healthcare trends, education trends. So, yeah, it's uh, we're we're not headed in a different direction. We've just broken the sound barrier. You know, the thing that's so fascinating to me is that technological disruption requires two things. You, you need exciting new technologies, but you also need large scale behavior change. And it's amazing how long these technologies have existed. And obviously they're always getting better and better. Um, but when you think back on the fact that Skype launched, you know, decent two-way video back in 2003, mm -hmm. 18 years ago, it took an epidemic to actually get my mother and, you know, hundreds of millions of uh, Americans to actually use two-way video. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, so Zoom was around pre-COVID, but your boss and your colleagues, and maybe even a little bit yourself, weren't comfortable with you working from home. And now all of a sudden people have said, you know what? Maybe we're not, maybe we're gonna lose some creativity, but we won't lose that much productivity. And maybe this is an opportunity to offer people the chance to be at home when they need to be at home. I teach now all 280 kids uh, on Zoom in my brand strategy course, NYU Stern. They wouldn't have tolerated it before and the university didn't tolerate it, but now we've been forced to do it. And I'm not saying it's not gonna go back to in-person, but it'll probably be a hybrid. You know, the consumer behavior and the regulations that have come down, you're right, that, that may be even bigger than the technologies here. I think that's an interesting mm -hmm. point. It's not the technologies that have changed, it's consumer behavior and acceptance that has changed. It's just fascinating as a massive, large-scale experiment. I mean, none of us could have imagined a year ago that this would happen. Obviously, this has been a double-edged sword for so many people. You often refer to the period going through July in the book. Mm -hmm. And you said, March through July of 2020 saw more than half a million deaths from COVID-19. Over the same five-month period, nine major tech companies increased in market value by $1.9 trillion. And they weren't any five months, but the worst five-month stretch the world has experienced in nearly a century. So now, since you wrote those words, total COVID deaths globally are 2.3 million, and the NASDAQ is up another 30% since July, which is just astonishing and bizarre. Is this rational? I don't know if it's rational. What I'll say is it's totally unjust and it's tremendously damaging. And I think a lot about this, and that is, the, the shareholder class controls America. Billionaires speak to their senator on average once every 30 days. And 50% of all contributions for the presidential campaign came from 400 families. And those 400 families speedball their influence with PACs, think tanks, uh, media. You know, the majority of media in this country is owned by a small handful of families. And they're not evil people. But has their pain through COVID been enough to really inspire a full-throated capitalist response. When World War II broke out, within nine days of Pearl Harbor, Chrysler converted its largest factory in Michigan to a factory producing tanks, and that one factory produced more M1 Bradley tanks than the Third Reich combined. What company that doesn't have a profit incentive has flipped to the war effort uh, around the virus that is killing people at eight times the velocity of World War II? And this has created real problems. And that is that I believe if Amazon stock had gone down 70% and not up 70%, when that van with a smile on it swings by my driveway this afternoon and drops off my Nespresso pods, I think someone in a white coat would have jumped out and jabbed me in the arm. Mm. If the NASDAQ was down 30% and not up 30%, I think we would have gotten our shit together and made, made the response in South Korea and Taiwan and Singapore look amateur. I worry that when you isolate the most powerful and wealthiest people from the pain of a crisis that is killing more Americans than any crisis in history, Interesting. you don't have, you don't inspire the full-throated capitalist response. And let me just do a lot of virtue signaling right now. I have decided until we are at herd immunity, I'm gonna give away every dollar I make. Rich people shouldn't be getting fucking wealthier during a war. We would have had a different response had the economic well-being of rich people been cut in half instead of doubling. Billionaires have gone from 1.9 trillion in the last 
10 years to $4 trillion. Minimum wage has skyrocketed from $7.25 to $7.25. So you tell me why we haven't had the response we should have had. Is it because we're incompetent? Yeah, there's something to that. But what if Salesforce, Microsoft, Apple, Walmart, and Amazon had all just basically shut down everything and said, we're not producing phones, we're not getting people their shit within 24 hours, we are tracing and we are vaccinating. But unfortunately, the virus doesn't kill rich white people. It kills poor people of color. And so we have not shown this virus what we are capable of. That's a really interesting argument. I haven't heard that before. I mean, this notion that, you know, that so many crises pull communities together. I remember feeling this post 9-11, living in New York, you may have been there as well. There was a sense that like, we're all in it together. Everybody was going to donate blood. And we're not feeling that same level of, of connectedness. And I, and I think you're quite right. The top 10% are actually benefiting and it's deeply disorienting and, and, and bizarre. But there is a logic to why these, the big four, as you call them, are becoming more valuable, right? Because this massive behavior change is in fact increasing sales. It's accelerating the, the future of these businesses. Yeah. Every business that was doing well is now killing it. Every business that was wavering is now in a death spiral. And, you know, I mean, there's some tropes. Peloton has done better than it's deserved. Zoom has done better than it's deserved. But movie theaters were struggling. What the hell has changed in a movie theater in the last 40 years? Meanwhile, my living room, I have a TV that's the width of a pencil. I have Sonos and sound everywhere. I can get Wonder Woman 1984 the day it's in the theaters. But I'm going to go to a theater where there's sticky floors and chairs that don't recline. I mean, there's been no innovation there. So, okay, they were holding on, holding on. And then wham, uh, COVID-19, the fist of stone comes from their chin. The point I was making is that you know, we're quick to bail out companies because of this exogenous event, right? We're going to take taxpayers' money, mostly funded by younger people and people who haven't been born yet in the form of debt. But we don't say, okay, the big tech companies have added a couple trillion dollars. A month. That's an exogenous event. We should tax them. We don't bring that up. Mm-hmm. It's always, we're in this together. Anyone who says we're in this together is a CEO looking for a bailout who used 10 years of, of unprecedented growth to buy back stock to juice his or her compensation. And now they got their fucking handout. I mean, it's grotesque. If you're in the top 1% during a war, your wealth has exploded. That's unusual. Should we maybe tax those people, and I'm one of them, a little bit more mm-hmm. and start paying back some of this incredible debt? And by the way, our stimulus, our rescue packages, what have they done? What have they done? I mean, there's been some loaves of bread and some circuses thrown for the poor, but this has primarily been cloud cover to make the rich super rich. The stimulus package should be called what it is. It's a hate crime against future generations. Your kids are going to have to pay this shit back. America used to be about how do we make people rich? Now America is like, how do we keep rich people rich? We have lost the script, Rufus. Well, hopefully, I mean, we had an election that was narrower than many of us would have liked, but nonetheless, it looks like there will be some increases to taxes. And so we'll, we'll see what happens. Okay. So this brings us to the second big idea in your book. Two, the more disruptive the crisis, the greater the opportunities and the risks. Some firms, including the four, are positioned on the right side of business trends and will be the primary winners of the pandemic. There's also an opportunity for positive changes in society. My optimism on this is tempered, however. Many of the trends the pandemic has accelerated are negative, chiefly the widening inequalities of wealth, health, and opportunity. Policymakers will need to take concrete action to prevent a flawed economy from becoming a free-for-all. You say, it's big tech's world, we just live in it. And you point out five companies, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, and Microsoft make up 21% of the value of all publicly traded U.S. companies. It's probably even higher now. One of the things that I find astonishing is when you think of all the areas in which technology is changing our future, you think of like artificial intelligence, driverless cars, you know, future of music, television, entertainment. These five companies are in every one of these businesses. So now it's seven companies are 51% of the S&P by dollar volume. And that is really bad for the ecosystem. I live in Florida and a bunch of people who 
purchased little anacondas or African pythons, once they got to eight feet and started killing their dogs, they released them into the Everglades. And this is a this is a species that has no apex predator. It can lay a thousand eggs and it's wreaking havoc with the ecosystem of the Everglades. Deer population going down, even the alligator population is going down. And it's even having impact on the flora and fauna of the Everglades. These companies are apex predators. They're monopolies. They really don't have any competition. I mean, occasionally they point to each other, but they're pulling away. We have a proud legacy in the United States of antitrust. It's a key component of capitalism. Capitalism is not organic. Everyone thinks that capitalism is just let everything run unfettered. A big company at some point will become so powerful that it will cement its position with lobbying, with capital, with acquiring threats or performing infanticide on them. And that's what these companies are. They're apex predators. And as a result, they're just pulling away with it. There are more full-time lobbyists working for Amazon in Washington, D.C. than there are sitting U.S. senators. There's more people in the PR bullshit spin department of Facebook than there are journalists of the New York Times. So essentially, the regulatory bodies that are supposed to be a countervailing force have become co-conspirators. And everyone thinks about antitrust as some sort of a punishment or socialism. No, it's not. It was introduced by a Republican. The most dynamic, fastest growing parts of our economy tech hardware, AI, uh, social media, search, are controlled by a monopoly or a duopoly. So job growth in those sectors, which should be the, the, the greatest areas of job growth, is really anemic. We think we're living in an era of innovation. No, we're not. We're living in an era of non-innovation. There were more companies being started during the Carter administration than there are now. It used to be 15% of companies were less than a year old. Now it's 7%. New business formation has been cut in half because try and raise money for an e-commerce company right now. Try and raise money for a search. Or there hasn't been a social media company of any size started in the U.S. since 2011. Mm. So look, it, it, we, we tend to, we bought into this notion that to be true capitalists, we have to let these guys run on Federer. No, we don't. We break them up because we are capitalists. I think the most oxygenating thing you could do in our economy right now would be to triple the budgets of the FTC and the DOJ and have them go through not just big tech, big ag, big pharma, mm. and break these companies up. The concentration of power that is accreted to the top two or three players in every industry has grown dramatically, and it's, it's uh, basically a giant foot on the windpipe of startups across America and medium-sized businesses, which traditionally have generated two-thirds of our jobs. What do you think of the arguments of Sheryl Sandberg, for instance, that we need to keep these companies together to compete effectively with, with China? That's a racist trope. There's no evidence that big competes better with other. National champions don't work. It's been tried in France with Dassault or Air France. It's been tried in Canada with Bombardier. And when you have national champions, all you end up doing is ending up, end up with like encephalitic companies that aren't very good. They get used to getting bailed out. Small companies are more nimble, more aggressive. In my opinion, if WhatsApp was an independent company right now, I'm not sure if TikTok or Slack or Teams would have emerged. I think WhatsApp, instead of being this giant digital corpus just feeding data to the Facebook ad unit, would have probably uh, innovated more. So I just don't buy the notion that you need big and burly to compete, you know, did we keep eBay and PayPal together? No, we split PayPal and it's now worth 17 times what eBay is worth. And it's a very formidable competitor. So this, this Sheryl Sandberg delay and obfuscation racist trope of, you know, we're here to protect you from the Chinese. No, actually, we need protection from Sheryl Sandberg, who is charming and compelling and has convinced us to let this company be weaponized by foreign agents, to let this company mm. depress our teenage girls, to let this company pervert the sanctity of our elections, to let this company let division and hate run amok on their platform. But she's going to save us from the Chinese? Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I wonder what this looks like when you look at the Apple ecosystem. I mean, I have enjoyed the experience of walking down the street, listening to perhaps the Prof G podcast show. And with this incredible triangulation between my iPhone, my Apple Watch, and my AirPods, the ecosystem works beautifully, which you refer to as like a flywheel. Would you advocate busting up Apple and how would that impact this kind of ecosystem experience? So I think antitrust should and will happen to Amazon, Google, and Facebook. Not in that order. I think it'll go Google, Facebook, then Amazon. 
Yeah. Uh, I don't, because elegant antitrust is oxygenating. The elegant antitrust yeah. results in shareholders uh, getting richer. I think Amazon is worth more broken up. I think Facebook shares go up if they break it up. The same with Google. Uh, Apple, the hard part is who gets the brand if you were to break it up. And uh, so my sense is Apple, uh, you say to the app store that controls something like 70 or 80% of the dollar volume that goes into apps, you regulate it like utility. It's like, okay, everybody has to go you know, travel on these rails. So we're going to regulate it the same way we would regulate a utility. But I don't think, I think they all have some sort of antitrust action uh, with the exception of Apple, that, uh, that it's more about regulation. When we come back, Scott shares some bold predictions for 2021 and his six-word investment advice. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. One of your bold predictions for 2021 is that Apple will buy Peloton, doubling down on their expansion into fitness. What's the, what's the case here? Well, I think that, so a couple things. It's, it's a war for attention. iOS versus Android is sort of the battle, the celebrity death match of the ages. And it's all about grabbing people's attention. They all want to be the kind of operating system for your digital life, which is turning into your life, quite frankly. And so they're all trying to add different components that grab another minute, another three minutes, another 10 minutes of your attention graph. And the acquisition of Peloton, first off, I've never seen brands that are more congruent. I think Peloton has the kind of this nice, elegant, feminine, it just feels very Apple-esque to me. Uh, so I think the brand fit is there. Two, if they were to acquire Peloton, they would get another 30 to 60 minutes of attention graph two to five times a week from people ranging from President Biden to Oprah Winfrey. And I think that's worth a lot of money. And this is an instance where I don't know with their supply chain problems and even their cash flow that Peloton independently is worth 30 or 35 billion wherever it's trading today. But I think it's worth substantially more than that to Apple if it gives them more of the attention graph, more momentum around fitness across that demographic. I think the logic there makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think it's good advice to Apple, but it strikes me that Apple's so overconfident or perhaps correctly confident in their ability to create amazing products that they don't tend to like to acquire for the product itself. I had hoped that Apple would buy Sonos years ago. Mm -hmm. I think it would have been a great fit, but it strikes me that they, they don't tend to go there. They're not an acquisitive company. Uh, Sonos, uh, you know, one of my big stock picks last year was Sonos. I only make one or two a year. And I thought Sonos would, there are very few. So it goes back to this notion of, okay, what are, where are the big transfers in capital? And the, one of the biggest is the transfer from office space to residential. And there just aren't that many great brands in the home. Think about it. Mm -hmm. There's a ton of great apparel brands, ton of great car brands, ton of great tech brands. How many great brands are kind of in the home? And so the few brands that stand out in the home, and I think Sonos is one of them, are going to be fantastic investments. Uh, so you're going to see anything in and around the home, around the betterment, if you will, of your home experience is going to do really, really well. One of the great lines in your book is, I only invest in unregulated monopolies. Is that advice that you also give to your listeners? Yeah, so I've been pilloried because I said a lot of companies were overvalued and a lot of them went up and I was wrong. But people have said, this is, I've said, this guy is the worst investor in the world. So I actually made all of my investments public. Hmm. And I only typically buy stocks that I see as unregulated monopolies. I've owned Amazon and Apple since 2009. I owned Facebook for two years and then sold it because I got so much grief and some of it was warranted for being so critical of them, but while well, technically financing their, their damage to the Commonwealth. So I sold that. 
But on a risk-adjusted basis, I think you want to find unregulated monopolies, specifically the four. But my basic, my basic message or a new message I'm really proselytizing right now is I know how to get you rich. The bad news is it requires discipline and you get rich slowly. 80% of day traders lose money. 80% of options expire worthless. If you put money into the market and leave it there for 20 years, 100% of those people make money. There's been no 20-year period in U.S. history where money in the S&P hasn't increased over 20 years. And when I showed my stock investments, what I thought was illuminating or hope was illuminating was not that I'm some genius at picking stocks, but that my genius is I buy and sell a stock on average every 10 years. I do a lot of thinking around a company, then I buy it, and then I hold it for 10 years. And guess what? I almost always win. And if you are day trading, you are almost always going to lose. I think of stocks and the markets as an amazing place to build economic security over your life. But here's what it means. You got to find something else you're great at, make some money, and then every month, Put money in the market and good stocks, or if you don't want to pick stocks, just the S&P index, low cost, and then don't trade. Don't trade. Yeah, it takes patience. I've had a similar journey to yours. And what's astounding is, I think it was originally Einstein called the power of compounding interest, the eighth wonder of the world. And supposedly he didn't say it, but he's credited with it. Okay. And Buffett, I associate with that quote, right? Because he's lived it. But the incredible math is, as you say, the S&P has generated 10 to 11% year over year, compounded over 20 years, that's almost 7x return in 20 years. But the NASDAQ in the last 10 years has generated a 20% annual return. And if that were to compound over 20 years, that would be 38 times your money. Something that I think is interesting is that the tech stocks have historically been thought of as being high risk, high yield, You know, a little riskier, a little bigger upside. And I feel like 2020 may have been the year when the flight to safety, what investors do when they're nervous, has changed from being a flight to old school blue chip stocks, Exxon, GE, Walmart, to tech stocks like Apple, Google, and Microsoft. I almost feel like post-corona, non-tech stocks are almost riskier than tech stocks because we know that the world's being turned upside down and you need to understand technology and have that in the core of the DNA of your company. Does that resonate for you? Yeah, so typically we think of high risk, high return. Tech monopolies are low risk, high return because they've been allowed to maintain their monopoly status. It's just awesome to be a monopoly in a growing economy. And guess what? It's even better to be a monopoly in a declining economy because you can play offense. Do you realize these companies have all increased their hiring during the pandemic? They saw a huge opportunity. While everyone was, or a lot of companies were furloughing or laying off people, they're like, this is an opportunity for us to go on offense. I think that's right. I think this is a great time to move to big idea number three. Okay. Three, key traits will determine who survives the crisis. Companies with variable cost structures and asset light models are more likely to make it through revenue declines. Products and services that give back time to people juggling work and schooling at home will be highly valued. And leaders who can increase employee satisfaction and innovation during the great dispersion of remote work will emerge with a potent new tool in their management toolkit. Most businesses that endure will benefit from some or all of these characteristics. Scott, let's talk about remote work. What are the benefits and drawbacks of remote work? So again, it's largely going to be a transfer of wealth from the poor to the rich. If you make over $100,000 a year, 60% of those people can work from home. If you make less than 40000 a year, only 10% can work from home. Uh, the former group has had no change in unemployment. Uh, people who make less than $40,000 a year, 40% of them have seen some form of job interruption. Work from home and also remote schooling has basically meant that moms have to stay home more with their kids to ensure that their eight-year-old is logging on. There's been a dispersion of responsibility from our schools to moms. So an eight-year-old at home, and I know this, I know this personally with a 10-year-old at home with a remote schooling, mm. it's not remote schooling, it's homeschooling with mom as the teacher. And people say, well, that's sexist. No, it's not. It's, the, it's almost always the mom. It's almost always the mom. So what's happened, and this is staggering, the number of women in the workplace 
has reverted back to where it was 30 years ago. There has been incredible exiting of the workforce of women because they have to now teach their kids at home. And what does that mean? It means one, a disproportionate amount of homeschooling has been placed on mom's shoulders and we've lost a ton of women in the workforce. When people go to remote work and they move further away from headquarters, usually they say, okay, uh, mom's gonna be the one that stays home. I think remote work, quite frankly, uh, decreases your wage and earnings power. I tell young people, put on a dress, put on a tie, going to work every day. The correlation between your proximity to headquarters mm-hmm. and your career trajectory is positive because there'll be two people or three people who are qualified for the promotion. And the person making that decision will largely, the tiebreaker will be their relationships. And relationships are much easier to form in person. So while you can afford to, while you're not collecting things like spouses and kids, mm-hmm. go into the office every day. And so the people who are, I'm not going to say be relegated to remote work, but the people who are forced to do remote work because they have a disproportionate amount of the responsibility at home are going to be disproportionately women. They're going to lose earnings power. Mm-hmm. And there are also, what happens when we have remote schooling? We have an entire generation of kids coming off the tracks because if you're a woman at home and you're a single mom, you can't stay at home. You got to go to work. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of kids, they can't sit there and do math on an iPad. There's just no way. So kids in public schools that are lower income typically track in line with their middle and upper income uh, colleagues. But now that we're at remote schooling, they have fallen off the map because they don't have a parent at home because their parents have to go to work. Mm-hmm. They don't have the choice to stay home. So we're losing a huge number of our civic leaders, a huge number of our CEOs, a huge number of our scientists to discover the next vaccines because we're taking out of the pipeline uh, an entire generation of young people, mostly from lower income households who could be enormous contributors to our society. So what is this doing, this pandemic doing? It is really punching in the gut, working moms, Yep. And also low-income kids who are falling off the map in terms of math. I'm really inspired by this movement called Marshall Plan for Moms. Mm. I think that we are spending way too much money on stimulus. I do not think we should bail out small businesses. I think we have this fetish of small business that is just strange. The largest cohort of millionaires in America are small business owners. Uh, but for some reason, we decide to fetishize them. I think if we're going to make a massive investment in any cohort, it should be moms, specifically moms who are middle and lower income. Hmm. And it's not, we look at the pandemic and say, well, it's just gonna play out how it's gonna play out. The world is what it is. No, it isn't. The world is what we make of it. And we have some decisions here and some opportunities. Are we gonna leave emissions behind? Maybe 40% less carbon in the air in Florida is something we should try and hold on to. Are we gonna leave 30, 40, 50% of our commuting behind so we can give people more time with their families or more time for people to make more money? You know, what do we leave behind here. And I think some, to really think about some forward leaning investments and what we could do, how we could press the reset button. Should we make downtown parts of New York just car free? Yes. You know, that's one of the nicest things I've noticed about Manhattan Absolutely. we just got rid of the cars. So it's an opportunity to rethink our priorities and to, I hope young people look at my generation and think, Jesus, what were those people thinking? We need more empathy. We need to be more focused on making sure households aren't food insecure. One in five households with kids is food insecure. That is, that is unacceptable. We are the wealthiest nation in the world. We need to start acting like it. But the notion that it's all going to happen organically and it's going to play out and the pandemic's going to end, it's a huge opportunity. Let's rethink things. Let's rethink things. And when you talk about the impact of uh, the epidemic and this change in behaviors and remote work on women... You point out in the book something I wasn't aware of, that women under 30 who don't have children have closed the pay gap with their male counterparts. But once women have kids, they go to 77 cents on the dollar relative to their male counterparts. You know, once kids are back in school, this is obviously an incredibly tough time right now for working women and and working class families across the country. But once kids are back in school, if we have a more flexible hybrid work dynamic, this could benefit women who, who can uh, enjoy more flexibility with working hours. Yeah. So young women in our country are doing really well. 70% of high school valedictorians are girls. More women attend college now than men. More women graduate from college than men. 
under the age of 30, college grads, uh, females have closed the wage gap. They're making close to 100 cents on the dollar with the male counterparts. Where things come off the track is when they have kids. And that is corporate America hasn't really learned how to maintain a career trajectory for someone who decides to have kids. And people point to what Goldman Sachs and Facebook do, and they do a great job of providing family leave and maternity and paternity leave. But the problem is that is a fantastic retention tool, and it's a form of compensation, and only the most profitable companies can afford it. And typically, the people that get benefits in those companies are people, I don't want to say don't need it, but need it less than anybody else because they're double E grads from MIT. The people who need paternity, maternity leave, family leave, uh, the need the need these kind of things to lift them up are typically not the people getting jobs at Facebook. And so waiting on the better angels of companies to provide you know maternity leave, I don't think is a good strategy. So there are going to be winners and losers coming out of this. We know big tech is a winner. Who are the losers, the big losers, do you think? The biggest disruption in our economy will be around healthcare. 99% of the people who have contracted, endured, and developed antibodies to the novel coronavirus will have done so without entering a doctor's office, much less a hospital. You talked about consumer behavior changing. Mm-hmm. People, the idea that you would have a life-threatening illness and never go to the doctor. The regulation has come crashing down. It used to be, no, you're not allowed to talk to your doctor on the phone. Uh, you have to come in a second time to get a refill on a fairly innocuous prescription. Why? Because we want to support the existing healthcare industrial complex where a small number of firms are just printing money. And they figured out a way to weaponize it and have weapons of mass entrenchment. And because of COVID, a lot of regulations came crashing down. And we're going to see the largest industry in the world, U.S. healthcare, 70% of GDP, $3 trillion a year industry. Uh, Two-thirds of it doesn't require an actual procedure. You can't get a disc removed or a knee replacement at home. But the majority of the time, the majority of healthcare, two-thirds of it can probably be delivered over a smart camera and a smartphone. Mm. This presents an enormous opportunity. There's probably 100 million people out there that don't go to the doctor's office. They go to the emergency room because they're intimidated. They're underinsured. They don't have access to great health care. I mean, there's just, I think there's an entire swath of America that we could go from taking health care as defensive and disease-driven to offensive and health-driven. You know, you also point out, Scott, that um... There are a lot of mass-produced products out there that are sold at a premium basically because of decades of marketing that we have positive associations with them. But there's this great new direct-to-consumer category. Uh, and at the risk of oversharing, I'm currently wearing Mack Weldon underwear, Bombas socks. Actually, full disclosure, many of these companies have advertised on our podcast. No, I'm going to say first-generation podcast advertisers. <laughs> I know. But I bought, I bought each of them before they ever advertised on our show because they're just high-quality products. And, and, and you feel like the money you're spending is going directly into the product opposed to a marketing budget and, and also all the inefficiencies of a retail chain. Um, do you think this is a, another category of vulnerability? Um, so uh, loosely speaking, you have um, an enormous transition from what I'll call the brand era to the innovation of the product era. And... The brand era, and I've made a nice living preaching the following, manufacturing differentiation has hit a ceiling, and the only way you can really tangibly differentiate is through intangible associations around a brand. And the key algorithm to making a lot of money from the end of World War II to the introduction of Google was take a mediocre salty snack, a mediocre beer, a mediocre American car, and wrap it in these amazing associations of youth toughness, European elegance, sex appeal, paternalism, and then reinforce or pound away at those associations using this incredibly efficient tool called broadcast media, stuff the channel, sell products at 50, 60, 80 points of gross margin, print money. This is Procter & Gamble, General Motors. That was the algorithm for massive shareholder value. Yeah, That changed with the introduction of these platforms because all of a sudden these weapons of diligence uh, supplanted brand. I no longer need to defer to the Four Seasons of Rich Carlton or Mandarin Oriental when I go to London. Now I can go on TripAdvisor, I can go on Instagram, and I can learn that the Ferndale hotels are actually smaller, cooler boutique hotels with a good gym. So it's sort of the product is the new bomb again. And you no longer need to defer to the brand that has all the awareness because I used to buy a Norelco or a Braun Clipper to shave my head. Now I can go onto blogs and find out that there's this re 
engineered tank factory in East Germany that makes the best hair clipper. It's just the best is winning out again. Product design, user interface, uh, supply chain, statistics. You know, this is the new way you differentiate product and you make a lot of money. Tesla is a superior product. Google is a superior product. Amazon is a superior offering. Are they great brands? Yes. What do they all have in common? They spend almost no money on traditional branding. Yeah. So we have left the brand era. Don Draper has been drawn and quartered. It's revenge of the pocket pen protectors. And the innovation just isn't around, <laughs> isn't just around product. It can be around distribution. Apple's gangster yep. move wasn't their iPhone. The iPhone isn't really any better than a Samsung Galaxy. It was around distribution. They made 400 or 500 temples to the brand called Apple Stores. Where else can you buy any technology that is anything resembling an Apple store? What, in an AT&T store? Best Buy? Sort of. Sort of. But it's not the inspiration that is Apple. Anyways, we have moved on from brand to product or innovation. I love this observation that the uh, differentiating innovation of Apple might be glass staircases. That's right. <laughs> in, the, in, the, in their shops, right? That's right. Hotel chains and hair clippers aren't the only brands ripe for disruption. After the break, Scott makes the case that colleges and universities, some of the best-known brands in America, may look very different post-corona. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Well, when we talk about brands, there may be no more powerful brands than Harvard and Stanford. And this brings us to big idea number four. Four, higher education will never be the same. For decades, higher education has been sticking its chin out farther and farther. Just consider the fact that in the last 40 years, little about the college experience itself has changed, yet tuition has increased 1,400%. COVID-19 will be the fist that meets it. The disruptability index for higher education is off the charts. What SARS was to e-commerce in Asia, Alibaba broke into the customer space, COVID-19 could be to higher ed in the United States. The heart of the coming transformation of higher education is technology. As in so many other areas, the pandemic has forced the industry to adopt distance tech that faculty and administrators have resisted. The experience during this period will accelerate adoption. Schools and professors that take this new medium seriously will garner huge advantage over the next few years, and their stakeholders should benefit. This is not only because online instruction can provide learning opportunities that classrooms can't, but because online education does something else. It scales. And that scale will allow individual institutions and individual professors to expand their reach exponentially should they choose to. This provides the potential to correct one of the great inequities of the last half century, the artificial scarcity of elite education. So you say for decades, higher education has been sticking its chin farther and farther out. COVID-19 will be the fist that meets it. Highly quotable as always, Scott. What's going to happen to higher education? So let's set, set the stage. So the elite schools are going to accelerate in popularity. They're no longer public servants. They're luxury brands. They artificially limit their supply such that a dean can stand up and say, we rejected 90% of our applicants and we all applaud, which is tantamount to the head of a housing shelter bragging that he or she turned away 90% of the people that showed up last night. It, it just absolutely makes no sense. When I applied to UCLA, the admissions rate was 60%. It's now 12%. And the alumni like that because, again, it's another transfer of wealth from poor people who can't get into these schools now to rich people who want the certification and the value of their certification to go up. And the bad news is if you brag about not being able to get into the school now that you got into, okay, great, take some pride in that. That means your kid's not getting in. And that's happening across the elite universities, totally drunk on exclusivity. They're no longer institutions of higher education. They're hedge funds educating the children of their investors. Write them off. They're lost. I have no hope. The opportunity is with the big public schools that 
educate two-thirds of our kids. The University of Texas, you know, 200,000 people. University of California, 250,000 people. Cal State, 450,000 people. Florida state system, the Michigan state system. This is where we move the needle in America. And that is great schools at a reasonable price, although tuition has escalated. If we took half of our courses online, the ones that are mostly one way, not a lot of discussion, you double the capacity overnight. You double the supply overnight of our universities. And we should take UCLA not from 8,000 new seats every year, but 16 and then 20 and then 25. And people say, well, it'll kill the brand. Oh my God, what bullshit. When UCLA had a 60% admissions rate, I still got a job at Morgan Stanley. I still got into Berkeley Graduate School. So you have a group of individuals, specifically administrators, uh, who have decided that they're luxury brands. And what's happened? Tuition has skyrocketed. Have the outcomes skyrocketed? No. The number of kids are educating? No, they really haven't increased the number of seats. Stanford has triple the applicants, hasn't decided to expand its freshman class one person. But you know what's skyrocketed? Compensation of administrators. Mm. So I believe, loosely speaking, and I speak at a lot of education conferences, I've been booed a couple times, <laughs> that every decision they make, every conversation they have is a thoughtful, wokey conversation that leads to one place. How do we as university leadership and administrators increase our compensation and decrease our accountability, resulting in a transfer of wealth of $1.6 trillion from mostly middle-class households to universities. We need to hold these universities accountable and either cut off their funding if they don't start increasing their admissions rates, and we also need to dramatically decrease costs. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't have free college. That's stupid. It wasn't free for me. I had to work every summer. I took out some student debt. That's fine. College shouldn't be free, but it should be accessible. I grew up in a household that could generously be called upper, lower middle class, single immigrant mother, who lived and died a secretary. My household income was never more than $40,000 a year. And I got to go to an amazing school and into an amazing graduate school, mm. not because I was remarkable. I wasn't remarkable. I had a 3.2 GPA I got on the 80th percentile on the SAT. But California taxpayers and the regents of UC said, you're a native son of California. Our job is to take unremarkable kids and give them a shot of being remarkable. Instead, higher ed has pivoted to, let's take the 1% and turn them into billionaires. That's not what we're here for. They're going to be fine. The top 1% are going to be fine. If you're a 17-year-old and you play lacrosse and you built wells in Africa and you have a patent pending, you're going to be fine. Those aren't the kids we need to help. We need to help the kid that's just good, that's just good. America has fallen out of love with the unremarkable. We need to fall back in love mm -hmm. with them. And the way to start, the way to express that empathy and that love for the unremarkables in our nation is to dramatically expand the seats at universities. And technology offers that opportunity. It requires a different mindset. Administrators and faculty need to fall out of love with luxury and realize we are public mm -hmm. servants, not luxury brands. And we need to return higher ed to its rightful place as the upward lubricant of social mobility, not the enforcer of the caste system in the United States. That was Amen. a rant. That was a rant. Amen. That was a rant. That was a great rant. You know, and it's astounding. We had Daniel Markovitz, of the, who you know, author of The Meritocracy Trap on the show. And he had this great line that top universities are hedge funds with teeny schools attached to them that enjoy nonprofit status. Um, and they should only be permitted to have nonprofit status on their massive endowments um, if they substantially increase the number of people they educate. Do you think this is actually going to happen, or do you think we, we're going to? What will happen in practice is we'll have these more innovative private companies come in and change the playing field. I don't know. I, I'm disappointed. I think that unfortunately, just as we talk about this being accelerant, the stronger getting stronger. The top universe, the top fifty universities sure. are seeing their applications explode, and. I worry. I, I hope this is a moment in time. And by the way, there's a lot of play here. At universities, we've become very good at, at being more accepting of people who don't look like us, mm -hmm. but we're intolerant of people who don't think like us. 2% of Harvard faculty identifies as conservatives. And the result mm -hmm. is that legislatures and public, uh, public institutions and state governments you know, and anywhere between 45 and 55% of whom are conservatives go, do we really need to fund an orthodoxy that is counter to what we believe? And so state and local funding of public universities has largely been flat. It's increased a little bit. 
So we have to be, I think, a little bit more well. There's kind of this call-out culture on universities where conservatives are shouted down. There's this crazy wokeness feel to it. You know, I'm a liberal in almost any room I walk into. And when I walk into NYU and I'm, you know, a conservative, unfeeling, dangerous person. Mm -hmm. The reason campuses were put outside the city back in Greece was we were meant to provoke, Hmm. catalyze a conversation. Uh, And we're not doing that now. But I think this is an opportunity to start taking some bold steps to move it back to where it should be. I hope at least one of the more prestigious schools will 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 respond to your call because I think it's a great it's it, it's a it's a great directive. Um, well, this brings us to big idea number five. Five. Let's take government seriously again. The prescription for the pandemic is the same as the prescription for our broader illness: a wholesale renewal of our sense of community. We must wrest our government from the hands of the shareholder class, which has co-opted it, and end the cronyism they have instituted to protect their wealth. We must set aside our idolatry of innovators and look unflinchingly at the exploitation it promotes. In short, we need to take government seriously as a respectable, necessary, and noble institution, such that we can return to taking capitalism seriously as a vibrant, sometimes harsh, but productive system that betters lives. How do we achieve that? To start, we should stop sending 8th graders into the NFL. Our idolatry of the rich convinces us that we need a business person to straighten out Washington. But running a business is not serving in political office, and our best presidents have been, not surprisingly, politicians. We also need to stop thinking of antitrust, breaking companies up, as a punishment. It isn't. It's oxygenation. When we broke up AT&T, we birthed seven firms that in aggregate were worth more than the original. Even in this dark hour, there is cause for hope. Pandemics, wars, depressions, these shocks are painful, but the times that follow are often among the most productive in human history. The generations that endure and observe the pain are best prepared for the fight, so long as they embrace our species' superpower, cooperation. So you say that government has been co-opted by the shareholder class and Indeed, as you say, like our broader culture, we've fallen sway to this idolatry of innovators. Government is supposed to keep business in check and take care of people. And right now we seem to have it backwards. The attitude is let's coddle the businesses and let people fend for themselves. Is that the way you see it? Yeah, we've decided. I I think a lot of this goes back to as a society becomes wealthier, its reliance on the super being and church attendance goes down. So our community, our connection to each other, our ability to look to a higher being or source to answer really complicated questions. Our, our core advantage as a species is the size of our brain. Our brain is so big that we are expelled from the body prematurely. Most species when they're born, or a lot of them are kind of up and running pretty quickly, or most mammals when they're born, dolphin is swimming, an elephant is walking. We're born prematurely because our head and our brain are just so big. And our brain is big enough to ask really complicated questions, but it's not big enough to answer them. <laughs> So into that void slips a super being. And what is a prayer? It's a query to a divine source that sees everything and then sends back an answer we trust. Our new God is Google. If your kid is not doing well, the first thing you do is hit Google and say symptoms and treatment of croup. And it, it sends you back an answer you, you, you probably trust more than any rabbi, priest, scholar, mentor, or boss. And this idolatry of technology, which is the closest thing to mysticism and magic and godlike power that we have in our society now, has uh, unfortunately, also garnered the reverence of Jesus Christ. The Jesus Christ of our generation is Steve Jobs. We idolize these people and we idolize these companies. And as a result, we don't hold them to the same standards that we've held every other company. When they do shit like let their platforms be weaponized by the foreign intelligence arm of the Russian government, we forgive them. When they let a mob organize and plan on their platforms and overrun our capital, we ask them, we beg them to suspend Donald Trump's account. That's where we are. That's who we turn to. We need to stop. It's causing tremendous damage. It's only more terrifying how actually effective removing Donald Trump from Twitter has been in silencing him, which just sort of further proves your point. You call in the book for a wholesale renewal of our sense of community. And, and you wax nostalgic about you know World War II, Victory Gardens, everybody was buying war bonds. And then this incredible act of the United States helping to rebuild Germany and Japan 
it seems like we've lost the memory of the upside of the reasons for our sense of national kinship uh, and, and the reasons for global collaboration. What do we need to do to, to get those things back? That's a longer podcast. I have some ideas, but <laughs> the connective tissue of America seems to have gone away. We have algorithms of amplification uh, where we get our news that puts us into a bubble and convinces us that conservative people are mean, awful people, or convinces you know the other side, the progressives are are weak and stupid and don't don't understand America. So we get put into our bubbles with our media, and then dispersion or spending more time at home is a cousin to segregation. You don't feel for the homeless veteran because you don't see him on the off-ramp to work as much. You don't feel for the people of different income classes because you don't see him at the mall or the movie theater. You don't mm -hmm. relate to people with different backgrounds as much because you're not at the water cooler as much as work. We're, we're in our homes and we're slowly but surely segregating to people who look, smell, and feel like us. And there's a lot of research that shows when populations that aren't your population grow and you don't have exposure to them, you begin resenting them. And so it leads to some very dangerous places. So, you know, there is, there is a real need for connective tissue. The reason we passed so much great legislation in the 60s and 70s was because a lot of our leaders had served in the same uniform and they saw themselves as Americans first and then Republicans or then Democrats. And we no longer have that common uniform or that common connective tissue. So, I mean, a couple of things. We need to embrace, we have to have a truth again. We have to say, all right, peer-reviewed, evidence-based research that we call science is the truth. And when we see that vaccines are a gift that, that couples humanity, science, and truth, we need to hold on to a truth that vaccines are, are a good. And if there's anti-vaxxer content that needs to be discussed, then they should have that discussion, but we shouldn't have for-profit companies elevating those thoughts well beyond their organic uh, levels because they are so controversial and create so much rage that they create more engagement and more Nissan ads and more shareholder value. We have to have a place, a starting point of truth again. We also need, in my opinion, some sort of national service. It's easy for me who, who didn't have to serve in the armed services to be generous with young people's commitment. I'm not suggesting conscription. I'm suggesting we take some of this massive stimulus and say, okay, Let's have a Corona core mm -hmm. and take a lot of the young people who don't have opportunities professionally right now and get them out testing, tracing and helping people get vaccinated and then give them money for college or vocational program and start seeing that America, you know, is a patchwork and start having more empathy for people of different backgrounds, different economic classes. And then they can say to the guy or gal next to them, were you part of the Corona Corps? Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh, you're in Congress now. I'm in Congress. All right. We have different political ideology, but we're brothers and sisters in arms here. Let's get shit done for America. Well, I think Corona Corps would certainly be a step in the right direction. And maybe we need a secular church. It feels like uh, we need to have a a common set of values that we celebrate together broadly in a world in which there's less and less religious faith. Um, does that something that you think about? Yeah, I'm an atheist. I don't believe uh, in God. And, and uh, what I found is my atheism as a younger man was my insecurity that I would, I mean, when you think about it, my belief that there was nothing and then it exploded and created a bunch of gases and here we are. That's a pretty outrageous ideology. Totally. So, uh, I realized that I was just critical and judgmental and wallpapered my own insecurity and ignorance around religion. I'm still an atheist, but a role model for me as I get older is Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Who started with love of the poor. Right. That's not a bad place to start. So yeah, I just, I don't buy into his lineage, but I'm trying, I'm trying to learn more about Christ, mm. right? I don't think that's a bad yeah. place to start. Yeah. And I also, mm -hmm. I'm involved in something called Charity Water, uh, mm -hmm. which is a fantastic nonprofit. And the guy who started it, he doesn't, he doesn't in any way connect the nonprofit to his religious beliefs, but his name is Scott Harrison. And a lot for him about his move to Charity Water was a, a, a return to his Christian roots. Mm. And I just find it inspiring uh, yeah. that, that he decided my life is going to be in the agency of others. I am going to love the poor. Mm. And... Uh, I've just been inspired by him. And I thought anything that gives people a code that turns them into Scott Harrison, you know, yeah. I'm down with that. I need to understand it more instead of immediately 
disparaging or being judgmental about all religion. I, yeah. I, and that's how I spent the first 40 years of my life. And I want to, I just want to stop that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just a practice of coming together of, of all different kinds of people once a week to talk about what, what really fundamentally matters. It seems to me that should exist with or without a belief in, in a God between that and a new national service and antitrust and any number of other things we discussed, maybe, maybe we could make some progress. Thank you, Scott Galloway, for taking time out of your busy life, teaching, parenting, and antagonizing Jack Dorsey to join us today. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Rufus. If you have thoughts about Post-Corona or any of the other books in our series, we'd love you to join the conversation with me, Scott Galloway, and the other authors who appear on this show. Visit nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast. Join now and get three months of membership absolutely free. And do you know what else comes with this? Our brand spanking new app, which delivers ad-free versions of this podcast and 12-minute summaries of the most groundbreaking new books, including Scott Galloway's Post-Corona, from the authors themselves. Just go to nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast for three free months. That's nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast. Special thanks to Scott Galloway. His new book, Post-Corona, From Crisis to Opportunity, is out now. If you want to hear more of his rants, check out his two podcasts, Pivot and The Prof G Show. This is the first episode produced by our crack Next Big Idea team. Our executive producers are Caleb Bissinger and Michael Cognat. Our theme music is by Costa Galanopoulos. Sound design by Jason Freeman. Big thanks to all four of them. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you next week. Wondering.